0: Way to do this Let me show you a better way you don't have to be, you
1: don't Hi folks this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the survival podcast as always one man 's view of the changing world, the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher even if they don't. Today is Monday, September the 17th, 2018, and since it's a Monday, it's a Listener Feedback Day. This is episode 2293, and I've got a lot of great stuff from you guys today. A pretty long lineup, because some of them are going to be pretty quick answers. Uh, i got first a little segment from the folks over at CAC, also known as Citizens Assisting Citizens, an organization uh, that I founded many years ago to help with disaster relief, uh, in this case for Hurricane Florence. And just a little quick shout-out to how you can help from home behind your keyboard. We we'll don't need your money right now, though we would take it. We we'll don't need you to go to North Carolina, though we would appreciate it. But we do need some people just to basically be keyboard warriors. And I'll tell you how we can do that, uh, or how you can do that in just a moment. I have a question I want to do with ducks when they stop laying. We have, instead of peak oil, are we headed for peak oil demand? be a big change from the way things seemed like they would be just a few years ago. Uh, Do I do anything to prep yeast when I'm making mead or beer? I'll give you the short answer right now, no. I'll give you the slightly longer answer when we get there as to why. My thoughts on concealed carry insurance. I will admit some level of ignorance on this, but I will tell you my thoughts on it in general. Um, a new low for how ignorant of life some, some young people are today. And I have hashtag sad, even though I hashtag won't do anything in my blog just because I think it is. And you might think, you know, come on, Jack, you're always, you no. Know, when you read, when you hear this, you'll, you'll weep for your country a little bit. I'm, I promise you. Um, how about feeding dogs surplus eggs? Is that okay? How do we go about it? How often, et cetera. Why I think supermarket coin counting machines are sort of a scam. I actually originally in my notes had a scam, and then I went, that is unfair... Change it to sort of a scam, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Hooking up rain barrels for drip irrigation. An alternative to YouTube for archiving videos. I have some thoughts on that, including using YouTube and tricking YouTube into not being YouTube with the videos you want to archive. It's not really that hard. Uh, next up, dietary supplements, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the future of property tax and how it got so bad in the first place. Really diverse lineup today. We'll have all of that for even more in just a moment. Before we get to your feedback today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Western Botanicals. You know, I love herbal supplements. I'll talk a little bit about supplements and, and herbs and uh, vitamins and dietary supplements in general uh, in a segment later today. It we'll won't all be glowing and rosy, and that's because, well, a lot of people in the industry are just scam artists. Um, herbs are the original medicine of man long before there were pharmacies and things like that man relied on the plants around him to help treat ailments to help deal with toxins to help deal with chronic problems, etc. and I always go to herbs first because for a lot of things they work well the thing I want is I want to know that the herbs I get are exactly what I'm ordering. I don't want to deal with a company that lies to me and bullshits me and and, and it takes me you know beyond reality. I don't want somebody claiming they're going to cure my liver cancer with, with colloidal silver or something like that. So I love working with, and I have loved working with for now over seven years, Western Botanicals. Straight story, straight scoop. They don't do anything that's even close to the edge of unethical. They have real people that really care about you to take your customer service questions if you give them a call. They have just about everything you can think of that's herbal. And uh, if it's legal and herbal in the United States, you'll probably find it there. Additionally, I want you to know that everything that you get at Western Botanicals is either wild-crafted or gran- organically grown. Or gr- Organically grown, even. Anyway, check them out today, westernbotanicals.com, and they have a great discount program. You can learn more about it and get it for free. It costs everybody else 50 bucks. You can get it for free if you log into the benefits section of your MSB and save 25% on everything they sell forever. Next up today, ready made resources. This is a company that I love working with because they say what they do and they do what they say. They have all the resources you need for your prepping ready made, ready to go, point click and buy on their website. They've got it all from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. You will find it all at ReadyMadeResources.com, the company that says what it does and does what it says. Next up, let's take a look at a year in history. David Verne finally has the year 154 uh, filled in for us. We have Tribute from Crimea. And I was going to say, before I say this, I probably mispronounce people's names in this stuff, so I just make it up as I go, and you won't remember the exact names anyway. If you want to see how they're spelled, you can go to tspwiki.com and check out the Year in History segment. Uh, One of the most distant Roman client kingdoms was the Bosporan Kingdom, situated in modern-day Crimea. The current king, Tiberius Jupiter, sends an extra tribute this year due to threats from the Alans, a nomadic tribe, in response... Several detachments of legionnaires are sent to restore the old Roman camp of Carx, which has been constructed and abandoned by Nero. The Bosporan Kingdom will become the longest surviving Roman client kingdom and will be incorporated as an actual province by the Byzantine Empire after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. My take by David Verne. The emperor of this period, Antonius, is remarkable because of the near complete lack of wars waged by the Roman military. Most of this was established through diplomacy and a network of client kingdoms, while any hostile tribes were bought off. This ensured peace for now, but several tribes began viewing the empire as weak, wealthy, a weak, wealthy state, and this will cause problems in the future. Yeah, you'd think so. So this is how I feel about war. All wars should be avoided whenever possible, except not through bribery and buying off the enemy. Not through a policy of appeasement. I am all for diplomacy, but I'm not for appeasement. What is diplomacy? Diplomacy is two sides coming together at a difference. We have a difference of opinion here. And then you come to a reasonable diplomatic solution where both sides are recognized as equals. Appeasement is where one side clearly could prevent the other side from doing something unreasonable and allows them to do something completely unreasonable anyway. Like blackmailing. You see... When you're like, okay, see, we won't uh, raid your, your your stores and stuff like that. If you pay us, it's blackmail. It's extortion. And, and once you go to that, once you go to, hey, pay me or else I will, then you got to lay the thump down on somebody. I'm serious, man. And I know, right, Jack, you're an anarchist and all. Yes, I am. I absolutely am. Ideologically, I am an anarchist. I'm also a realist. And if you're going to have a nation... A nation state, and you're going to run a nation state in this day and age, and you start buying off your enemies, it will only in time lead to problems. It's a lesson the United States has not yet learned. We're really good at making more with people we probably shouldn't, and we're really good at buying people who we probably shouldn't be associated with. Because a lot of times the solution is not to go out and lay the smack down on them, drop the hammer on their head. The solution is don't deal with them at all. However, we love the entangling alliances that our founders told us to stay out of for some very strange reason. You'd almost think that maybe it's because there's a profit in doing so. My thoughts by Jack Spierko, as always, history does not always repeat itself, but it does seem to always rhyme. And real quick, before we jump into the show, let me just remind you guys, you know... Our sponsors often, like two you heard from today, many of our other sponsors, and a lot of other really great companies offer discounts to you if you support this show through something called the Member Support Brigade. Imagine a, pro- a program where you can do this. You can say, listen, I like listening to Jack. He does good stuff, and I'm willing to support a show for 20 cents an episode. But I think it's worth two dimes in return for what I get. However, since he has all these discounts for me, if I use them, I'll get at least my money back every year. If you use the discounts in the MSB, I'll promise you that's just likely to happen. You get to support my show, I get to do what I do and help you, and you get your money back. That's, that's the best deal I could come up with. That's how I put the member support brigade together. You can learn by, more by going to the, the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. With that, I do want to send kind of a shout out to you guys um, to help out with Hurricane Florence, now Tropical Storm Florence. We have a lot of problems out there. Uh, in spite of the, I, I told you guys, right? I told you guys last week. Listen, you're gonna see the media over hyping this and doing stupid crap. It doesn't matter. There's still gonna be people that need help. And did it happen? Did you, have you seen it yet? You know what I'm talking about, guys? There's this video, and it's this this uh, this weather guy from I think Weather Channel, and he's like he's got his you know his rain slicker on, and he's heaved over, and you hear the air in the microphone. <laughs> And he's like, it's getting really bad out here. This is about the worst. It almost looks like comed- like a comedy thing, except it's real. And then, like, while he's doing it, he goes, it's about as nasty as it's been. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, look at this. And then just like, these two dudes just, like, randomly strolling behind him. And, like, you could tell that, really, they found, like, a little spot where the wind is being funneled or something. And... And there's other stuff where the guy's like standing like he's in a flood, and there's people like walking right behind him and stuff. So, it, you know, he like found a hole to stand in. So that stuff's going on. But the reality is it's a massive amount of rainfall. It was a massive amount of storm damage and storm surge, and there's people that need help. And CAC, or Citizens, Citizens Assisting Citizens, is the organization that I founded and put together, and then step back and let other people run to address just this. Here's what we need right now. CAC team needs help, especially from those not in or near South Carolina or North Carolina. We need some keyboard warriors, people at home with a phone and an internet. Uh, we have fire departments, police departments, and hotel shelters that need to be called and asked if, if they can help and where help is needed. We are starting to deploy into areas around the flooding. It's still hard to get in to the uh, hard areas, affected uh, hard affected areas. So please go to cacteam.com and click on join and comment that you can be a keyboard warrior. We will contact you shortly. Also want to help immediately go to zello.com slash cacteam. Or get the Zello app on your phone and go join Citizens Assisting Citizens channel. Uh, and contact Redeemed or PA Prepper and tell them you can help with keyboard and phone work. Okay, and I will have links to both the Zello channel for CAC Team and CAC Team in the show notes today. So that's from Stephen Harris, Chairman of the Board of Directors over at CAC Teams. And it's definitely something we need your help with. And it's if you've been thinking, I want to help, I just don't have a lot of money right now to donate. And I can't pull up my life and go to North Carolina because, like, I'm I don't know, maybe in Oregon. or something a long way to go. You can help this way, and any help would be appreciated. So those are the methods to do that. Next up, i got a question from Sean. Sean says, what do you do or suggest doing with ducks that have stopped laying eggs? Are they any good for me? Do you have any info for the first-time duck owner? Thanks for all you do, Sean. Uh, Sean, Lou, first thing I would say, is if your duck stopped laying eggs right about this time of the year, like September, August, don't go chopping no duck heads off yet. Um, It's a little late, but I guess it depends on where you are, and maybe you sent this uh, a while ago and I just found it. I don't know, but we had a lot of people contact us this month, and it's because we're still known as the duck people in the area. And we had old customers who we had handed off to new uh, people because we, we sold all our ducks. And we, would, we didn't sell 150 to one person. We saw one guy 30, one guy 20, one guy 50, like that. So we handed off our customers. And they called us uh, – we handed off our customers to our new duck owners where we reduct the ducks, right? And um, all of we started getting calls from our old retail customers saying, hey, um, do you know any place else I can get ducks? Because the guy you referred me to doesn't have any eggs, we started getting calls from the people we gave ducks to. We started getting people, calls from people that have ducks that uh, we have no direct connection to, but they found us through the magic of the interwebs and like, we need some help. Our ducks aren't laying eggs. It's because it's August. So ducks, like all birds, uh, molt once a year. At least all birds I know of. If there's a bird that doesn't molt, forgive my ignorance of that. Uh, but most birds molt once a year. And when they molt, they're putting so much energy into growing their feathers back that they don't have a lot of energy for doing things like making eggs. So we had at one point we had like 120 female ducks here and we were getting like two eggs a week during the worst molt we ever had. And it's just the way it goes. So when you have a seasonal drop in egg laying from your girls, do not assume that all of a sudden, you know, they're just they're not going to come back. The other thing is there's things that can kind of shut ducks down. Uh, And they'll they'll stop laying eggs for a while just because they don't want to, because they're upset. Ducks fear change. So any major change in diet or routine sometimes can create at least a short-term drop in egg production. And sometimes they take, like they're done molting, and it might take a month for them to really come back laying heavy. If you have a large flock it's not really that big of a problem because, you know, you were getting 100 eggs a day, and then you went through the molt and you were getting two, and as they come back, all of a sudden you're getting 50, 60 eggs, and it takes a while before they come back up to that, you know, 100 out of 120 average a day. Uh, and then when you get in your peak season, you might get 120 a day. You might get a an a, a, a egg per duck per day on average in the peak of your season. So just be sure you're not going through an ebb and flow cycle and you're prematurely... Making a duck into a meat duck. Um, The next thing is they do tend to lay eggs fairly late in life compared to chickens, and it's uh, females in in the world of ducks and the world of humans have a and and chickens and all birds have something in common, including again with humans, that is that a a female is born with a specific number of ovum, like that can produce uh, children. So females produce you know an egg. Uh, is a regular part of their cycle, and then it can be fertilized, and they can have a baby. Uh, ducks, chickens, geese, etc., have a similar thing. They're all already there, and they kind of produce one out into the open, where with uh, a, a, a person, it turns into an embryo and then eventually into a fetus and a child, right? Where with a duck or a chicken or whatever, if they happen to be bred at the right time, that egg becomes fertile, and then they get laid and they get hatched. But otherwise, the process kind of works the same. There's a a finite number. This is why females go through menopause, because they run out. Well, a duck starts out with 1,500 of them, and a chicken with 1,000. So a duck has 500 more potential eggs than the chicken has from the get-go. And this means a lot of times your old matriarch ducks in your, your flock, they may not lay a lot. But they might be five, six, seven years old, and they still might lay an egg or two a week. And and the older they get, the more that will spread out. So one of the things you can do, if you are a recreational keeper, um, the meat quality and value of an old duck is not that great, especially the breeds that are really good laying breeds, Khaki Campbells, Indian Runners, Metzer 300s, etc. These ducks are small-bodied. They don't have a lot of meat on them in the first place because that's what makes them great on their feed to egg conversion ratio. Lots of the food they eat, that energy can go into making eggs because it doesn't have to support a large frame. We're on something like a, a rowan or uh, any of the larger breeds, cayugas, et cetera. Those birds are also decent uh, ducks as far as egg production, but they can't compete. On quantity and on feed conversion. Saxony is another example. They're a great duck, but they're big. And that means there's a lot of food that needs to go into maintaining them. But that's what makes, you know, a 12 year old Saxony or a 12 year old Cayuga or a 12 year old, 12 week old what I'm going to say, 12 year old Pekin. these are all great meat ducks. They're young, they're tender, and they're plump, but they've got a lot of meat relative to the carcass size. Um, your older ducks, not only did they not have a great deal of meat when they were 12 to 16 weeks old, which is prime. Uh, Harvesting age, you know, if you're talking about a duck that really has reached, you know, duckapause with her egg laying, and she's only going to give you an egg every two weeks or something like that, and you decided, okay, it's time for this one to go, you're talking to probably a five to seven year old duck. Well, their muscle structure has actually begun to break down, and so they're older and they're tougher, but they have less meat yield. So is it good? There's two things I believe that it's good for sausage and soup. Pick one. And gumbo. But gumbo's a kind of soup. All right? I know, like, I'm going to get crucified by some, some Louisiana Annans and stuff right now, some Cajuns or some stuff, but to me, gumbo's a type of soup, right? So here's why I believe that's the case. That meat's just too tough to treat the way that we should treat duck meat. Um, you could confit the drumstick and the thigh, and that'll be okay. But it's still just, I mean, it'll work. But if you take you know if you're going to let's say call four old ducks you're probably going to get right at a pound of meat each off of them maybe 3 quarters is is probably more likely so you know four ducks you're looking at what 3 pounds of meat but if you take that 3 pounds of meat and you add about a half a pound of fatty pork to it to add some fat to it um, and you know you make up a duck sausage and I would also include the duck livers and the duck hearts into that sausage. It's going to be fantastic. And remember, if you're going to make sausage, freeze your meat before you put it in your grinder. And I don't mean freeze it all the way solid like a popsicle, but freeze it till it's mostly frozen. Till, like, you can cut it with a knife. It's not hard as a rock. You can cut right through it with a knife, but it's kind of popsicle y on the outside. It will come out much nicer if you do that. Take the screw and the blade of your grinder. And the, the, uh, the screen that sets the size of the grind, all of the internal components of the grind, put it in the freezer. Keep everything cold. And, you know, if you're doing four pounds of duck, that's, that's sufficient. If you're, doing, if you're grinding a lot, here's another tip. Get a bucket of ice. And every once in a while, throw some ice cubes in your grinder and run the ice cubes through your grinder and obviously catch them into something separate and throw it away and discard it and don't put it down on the floor or something for the dogs because it's got all kinds of grinder meat chunks in it right okay so get rid of it but keep that grinder cold keep that meat cold it'll grind better and then soup obviously you can you can simmer things long term and make them tender if you want to make a soup that'll blow your mind make a duck soup just use your favorite chicken soup recipe and don't use chicken stock make your own stock from the duck and it is one of the best eating things you'll ever eat in your life Otherwise, about the only other thing you can do is slow-cook them. And you can slow-cook them as a confit. Uh, a confit, I'm sorry. Or you can slow-cook them like crock-pot, kind of like a cocovin, uh you would do with an old chicken. They are not going to be good if you take the breast off and do a good sear with the breast like I talked about last week. They're, they're just too old. They are birds that are not meant to be meat birds. So they're just not you know outstanding in that way. Um, I've always said that dual-purpose means excels at neither when it comes to birds. So if we have a dual-purpose chicken, it's not a great layer, and it's not a great meat bird, but it's okay at both. Okay, And that's true of ducks, too. If the bird, therefore, is excellent at one, it's lousy at the other. That's, that's the other side. That's the yin and yang there, right? No such thing as a dual-purpose that's excellent at both. Therefore, the one that's excellent at one thing will not be excellent at the other. So you're excellent meat ducks. I mean, you're, you're top of the line. Saxonese, Jumbo peckins. These are big ducks, great carcasses, wonderful meat. As a layer, they suck. Now, they lay big, beautiful eggs, but you're going to get 120 to 140 eggs a year. Where with something like a Metzer uh, 300 or a, uh, what's the other ones? That everybody loves Khaki Campbell's uh, Indian uh, runner ducks, you're going to get 250 to 300 eggs a year, more than double what these large breeds give you. And they're going to do it on half the food. But what you're going to give up is the meat yield. So I love duck sausage. And as much as I love duck soup, it's very hard for me to look at older ducks that have to graduate and do anything but duck sausage with them. Um, And the beauty of that is it kind of sucks to give up the skin, but all you really have to do is pull the skin off, yank the breasts out, yank the legs out. You don't have to skin them. You don't have to pluck them to be able to make a good sausage product off them. Just skin them and and part them out. And then you do, I would say this, like it's not has to be one or the other. We can do both. So what I mean by that is you take all the meat that's easy to remove and you use that for your sausage pile. Then you take all your bones with the little bits of meat on them and stuff like that throw that in the oven and brown it, and then throw that in a stock pot and make a duck soup out of that. There'll be a lot less meat in there, but let me tell you, duck stock is the most beautiful thing in the world of stocks. I mean, it's just sublime. So those are my thoughts there. Let's move on to another one. So next up, here's one from a buddy Mike. Mike says, quick and easy one today. Do you prep your yeast as per directions on the package before you add it to your small batch meats? Details, I'm stuck in Cali for eight months. And I want to focus on your small batch mead method, uh, among other things. I've got my first batch going now, strawberry, and I have plans for more. I noticed in your last mead episode, you went through the process, said you add the meat, and yeast, and nutrient. Uh, do you add it straight in, or prep it first? Do you shake after you add? Thanks, Brother Mike. Alright, so I do shake my... Uh, my and I, I don't worry about this when I do a big batch. Like, Actually, this week I'm going to be putting five gallons of cider up for the workshop, so we'll have a little cider on draft. And when I make like five gallons, I just throw the yeast in there, and I don't—I might jiggle the carboy a little bit, but I don't really worry about it. Since it's so this is so gone easy. When I'm making a gallon of yeast, I kind of give it a kind of a roundabout shake just to kind of get the yeast all soaked into everything and 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 mixed in. But I don't really care. It's not something I'm really worried about. I guess I do that sometimes and I don't others. It's not that important to me. I do shake the hell out of small batch yeet, meads, and ciders because the oxygen that you get in there before fermentation starts is really great. And it's really critical to getting the maximum out of your yeast. And, uh, again, that's one of the things I love about small batch. And it's one, one of many reasons I think it finishes so quickly is because you can get such a great oxygen Aided environment, you just take that bottle and shake the hell out of it. You can just see bubbles going like crazy in there, right? So I always do that. And then I always leave enough headspace, and I won't get into my full process today because I've talked about it so many other times. And I just pour the yeast on the top. And yeah, you can shake it up or you can just leave it there. I don't really care. Because it's going to, here, here's the thing what they tell you to do on the package, if you've ever read the back of one of these packages before, is take a small amount of water, put your yeast in it, and let it rehydrate. And then dump it into your your ferment. Okay. Why? Because the yeast gets all happy. Gets all hydrated. Yeah, it'll get hydrated in the container. And here's the other reason. I've done it both ways. And I have to say, when making beer, not much so mead, when making beer, I do feel that if you proof the yeast that way you do tend to get a little bit better of a start. Now, understand what we're doing here. We're hydrating the yeast. That's it. That's all we're doing. It's not like we're making a starter. It's not like we're putting the yeast in something and we're feeding it a little bit and letting it multiply and then uh, pitching the yeast kind of all woken up alive and multiplied already. We're just hydrating the yeast, and it begins the wake-up process. You throw them in in the wort, they wake up. And it's one more step. And it's one, to me, it's one more thing to sanitize. And it's one more thing to clean. And it's one more time in the process that I might get something in there that I don't want in there. So I just throw it in the, and I go on. And that's what I recommend you do. Now, remember, when I'm doing small batch meat, I'm doing a mix of the Pasteur Blanc and the uh, uh, Pasteur uh, Cuvée yeast. That I, and you can find, if you go to my site, and you type in yeast. You can find both of those. They'll come up as an item of the day uh, article, and you can use those. And in general, when I'm making a gallon, it's so cheap, I put a package of both in there. Each one of those packages can do five gallons. Now, if I'm making two gallons, I put a half a package of both in. If I'm making three gallons, I put three a third of each one in. If I'm making four gallons or more, I'm not doing small batch. You know, I'll make two to three gallons at a time a lot of times when I'm making meat, because it's so fast when you do small batch. But if I'm gonna go much more than that, I'm probably just gonna go ahead and make a you know a five gallon carboy full of it. So uh, I will divide it up. What I won't do is I'm making one gallon today. I'm not gonna like open the package, put half of it in there and fold it back up, because I if I know for a fact, like I only have time to make a gallon today and I'm gonna make a gallon. Two days from now, this is Monday, and I know I'm gonna make another gallon Wednesday night, and I'm sure of it. I'll tape it up and throw it back in the refrigerator. If I'm not sure, and I know that shit gets in the way of my life, and I might not be getting back down back to using that package for a month or more, I've opened it, I throw it in, I'm done. That's that's just my thoughts. Uh, next up, Marty says, What are your thoughts and experience with concealed carry insurance? Uh, I'm looking at USCCA and NRA Carry Guard. Do you think having concealed carry insurance makes sense? Thanks for everything you do for our community, Marty. Um, Probably I don't have it. Um, I have been um, alienated a bit by two different companies that sell it and use a network marketing platform to sell it with. Um, And the way that I've been approached with that, I did not like it at all. And that's probably foolishness because... Just because I don't like that company, I mean, like you mentioned, NRA, Carry Guard, I get it. However, you know, in the end, all you have is legal insurance that's only applicable for a certain thing. And it might be better to just have a legal insurance product. I- I'm really not sure. I-, I-, I think that more important than insurance for concealed carry, right? Or, or gun owner insurance, right? In, in a case of, because most of these are not really concealed carry insurance. There any time that you need to use a gun for lethal force and defense of your life and/or property? Um, that's what they should be. Because if it like if you're going to tell me okay it's, it's a it's a product to protect you as an armed citizen and somebody breaks in my house in the middle of the night and I end up pulling my shotgun out and shooting them because they're trying to hurt me or something, then you're not going to help me because it wasn't while I was concealed carrying. I'm not even talking. Now we're talking way too limited, way too niche. But I've never seen one that's like that. So you're back to you know. Anytime you use a gun. What I think is more valuable than concealed carry insurance is to know exactly how to handle the situation if a shoot occurs, exactly what to do, and exactly what not to do. And you can get that information for free from a past episode of the Survival Podcast. I'll look it up for you. I'll put it in the show notes. But all you got to do is go to the, the website and use the search function and search for Masada Yub. Masada Yub is probably the most switched-on uh, advocate for people in that situation that there is. He has a, a fairly expensive course that probably costs about the same as a couple of years of insurance and probably more valuable, in my opinion, um, that people go take. But he distilled down the core of that into an interview he did with me many years ago. This has to be like six years ago or something that I had Mossad on the show, and I really should probably reach out to him and get him back on again because this is an important thing. But it's more about, to me, no, because it doesn't matter that you have insurance, right? That insurance doesn't provide you a get-out-of-jail-free card. What it provides you with is legal representation um, so that you would have access immediately to an attorney and not one the state gave you after they charged you. Right, um, you know, not the guy that's just doing his his year or whatever, public th- defense, so that he can get some hours and stuff, and find a way to either run for office or, or go somewhere else. Um, yeah, that I think is more important. Things like, well, okay, now that I've shot the person, what do I do? do I, if they're not dead, do I render aid? You know, they're no longer a threat. I've kicked the gun away, shot the guy in the chest. Uh, I really don't want him to die. Should I help him? The answer is no. No. No, you, you you call the police, you call 911, you tell them the guy's shot there and he's there. Why? Listen to the episode of Mossad. And you'll find out why. That's an example. Another example, and this is the extreme of what not to do, in that episode you'll hear a story of a guy that had his shop co- constantly getting broken into, and he stayed overnight to guard his property. He ended up shooting someone that broke into it. And when the first words out of his mouth, when he called nine one one, was I got him, I got one of them. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because I, I guess my my point is that in most instances, anyway, the armed citizen that actually legitimately defends themselves is not charged. In most, and with George Zimmerman aside, right, uh, most of these things do not become political. Uh, they look at the situation and go, good guy with a gun shoots a bad guy. Sorry for bad guy. Um, and they don't come after you. If you actually did something you shouldn't have, no amount of insurance in the world is going to change that. And if you said something you shouldn't have, no amount of insurance is going to change that. So even if you have insurance, it's very important to know exactly what you should do, what questions you answer, and where you say, and you draw the line, now that I've answered your questions, officer, I will be happy to confer with you further after I confer with counsel. And there, there is a place, they always say, don't talk to police, listen to that interview. Mossad says, you shoot somebody, defense of your life, that is not the time to say, I don't want to talk at all. Here's the things you say, here's how you say them, here's how long you talk, here's where you stop, and here's where you say, I'd like to confer with counsel. And if they say anything other than, well, of course, we understand that, then you say, I'm sorry, are you denying me my right to counsel? And you shut it down. But you answer the basic questions first, which are, what happened? What did you do? Okay, I don't even want to go any further than that. Listen to the episode. Because even if you're going to have an insurance product, then I think it behooves you to keep yourself out of trouble by knowing what to say and what not to say. Lastly... I have seen some of these products that cover you from criminal prosecution, but they do not cover you from civil litigation. Civil litigation is where the pillar of the community who opens your window with a crowbar, climbed into your child's room, whether he knew that's what he was doing or not, and was dumb enough to make too much noise, was met with a 45 caliber hole in his head for what he did, and then his, his, his sister, his mother, his uncle, his whatever, decides that his, his poor child's life was ended early and sues you. So if you're going to get an insurance product, I would be very clear about whether or not they just protect you from the standpoint of providing you legal support for criminal prosecution, or do they provide protection for both criminal and civil? Because the reality is if you... If you're not an idiot, and you don't go out and shoot somebody that doesn't need to be shot, if you don't have some kind of machismo and bravado, because just because you can shoot somebody doesn't mean you should. If you're in a situation where you can most likely get away with taking a shot, you still have the human concept that says, is this really necessary? And you've got to balance that with, if I wait too long, I might end up dead. Or this other person might end up dead. But I mean, the reality is... If you're somewhere and a guy pulls out a knife and he's, you know, put the friggin' tooler drill away, but he's approaching you with a knife, and you draw your gun, and he doesn't immediately start charging you, and he's standing there with a knife, you probably are going to get away with shooting him. Probably, maybe not. It depends on all the situation right. Do you really need to shoot him? You can say whatever you want about the 21-foot rule. That only applies when my gun's in my holster. My gun's drawn, and I've got it pointed at you. I don't care if you're Carl Lewis. That doesn't mean you can't get to me, but you're going to have a lot of holes in you by the time you do. That's why you need to be moving when you shoot. But in that situation, do you need to take a shot? Is this guy brandishing a knife? In any instance, you need to know, because you're going to have to live with it, that you took a life because you had to, not because you could. And if you're following that philosophy... And you say the right things, and you handle yourself the right way, your risk—I'm not going to say it's non-existent—but your risk of criminal prosecution is much lower than your risk of civil lawsuit, because that's how. And, and you know, put yourself in the place of this person, and I say, you know, the pillar of community was climbing through your window. I—I'm I, not going to apologize for the, for that facetiousness. He's a scumbag. He's crawling your house in the middle of the way with a crowbar. And as to your—what do- if it's your—what if your babies? You know, like you had a two-year-old in a crib in there or something. You have no idea why he's doing it. You don't know if he's got a gun. You don't know if he's got a knife. You don't have to crook But now you are that person's mother. Well, he was flawed. He was, you know, but he was going to steal your stuff, but he wasn't going to hurt anybody. And they really believe that. Or they don't. I don't know. But they're angry and they're hurting because their kid's dead. They want somebody to blame. Whenever there's a victim, the survivors of that victim always want somebody to blame. And so I do believe that that is your, uh, your bigger risk there. Uh, next up from Randy, this, this makes you sad, man. Uh, also, you also got to remember, like with being prosecuted, like jury of your peers. These people could be the peers on your jury. Um, Randy says, colleges realize how pathetically ignorant students are details i have decided to use my experience as a paramedic and seek a bsn rn to that end i'm taking classes at a local community college like all new students i am required to take a te- class entitled college skills the course number is col103 personally i think it should be called functioning in society and be assigned the code lif010 maybe it should be 0001 right or 000 what do you hear it why My last assignment for this class, which is 10% of my final grade, was properly composing and sending an email to my instructor. (laughs) This was due today. The instructor extended the deadline because so many students failed to complete the assignment. See, and I'm thinking like doing it on time was the assignment. Like, that was probably, like, the email was probably not really spell-checked or anything. It was just like, can you do this thing you were asked to do, right? Uh, (laughs) Ah, no, they can't, and they get an extension, so they'll pass. Uh, Today in class, we were presented with the following scenario. You are required to attend a meeting. The meeting is scheduled for Monday at 10.30 a.m. Over the weekend, you receive a note from your boss, which simply states, the meeting has been moved up 30 minutes. A full 30 minutes of class time was spent as the children in the class had heated debate over whether the hypothetical employee should show up at 10 or 11. After that, finally, the children calmed down. Jack, this is a for real, three-credit hour, got to pay for it class. They are requiring people to take. Uh, Are graduating high school students really that pathetically ignorant? Other topics covered so far. You are responsible for completing your assignments. You are responsible for getting to class on time. But if you need help, the college has transportation resources. Why Kaepernick is right in what he is doing. Yes, this was a lecture. This is not a joke. This is a for real, freshman level, college class. God help us, Randy. Yeah, God help us indeed. I mean, this is... like this, This new project I'm doing with 30 Laws of Life and the book I'm writing to go with it, this is part of why... See, I don't think I can, it's easy, it's easy to say, look how pathetic these people are. But the word ignorant is the word that I used, and it's the word Randy used, and it's the right word. This is not stupidity. This is ignorance. These are children who have been raised without being required to learn how to be responsible, and therefore they haven't. These are children who have been raised as spoiled little brats, and therefore they are. These are children who are prevented from developing life skills because, oh God, they might skin a knee. These are children who, when they first played sports, if they played at all, they didn't keep score so that nobody's feelings would be hurt. These are the kids that, when they did an Easter egg hunt when they were six years old, they put all the Easter eggs out a parking lot, and they didn't actually hide them so that everybody could find someone. We, we created this. We created this. They have no life skills because they haven't experienced life at all. They have no idea the consequences of inaction because they've never been held accountable to the consequences of inaction. And I think one of the things that is the biggest problem for young people today is the lack of a strong male in the home. We're at a place now where divorce rates are 50%. And I'm going to tell you something that people aren't going to like, because a lot of times you give a fact. If it could mean something people don't like, then they don't like the fact. I haven't checked this out, but I would lay money on it. The divorce rate is higher among couples that have children. And it's significantly, it's probably significantly higher with couples that have multiple children, two or three, are more likely to be divorced than childless couples. And I don't know exactly why that is, but in my experience, the people I've known that are divorced, most of them have kids. Most of the people I know that got married that don't have kids, they don't get divorced. Maybe it's one less thing to fight over. Maybe it's less financial stress. I don't know, but it seems like it happens less. Uh, and thats I am not advocating for being in childless uh, marriage. I am not. I i love my son. I love my grandkids. I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying it seems to happen that way. And what I, the reason that's important is that means that probably half or more of children don't have a father in the home. And no matter how good a parent, a mother is, she's half of a, half of the parental unit that is the mother and father unit. And it's the same for a father. It's not like, well, you know, it, women can't raise a complete child without a man, but men can do it without a woman. And men and women both can, but it's difficult, and it's more difficult. Parenting's hard. It's not easy, especially in this day and age. Do You take, it, it, it doesn't even have to be man and woman so much even in, when you think about it that way. Just take, you have a job and there's two people to work on it, take one of them away. That's not sexist, That's just, a, you know, here, you guys have to take all this dirt and put it in the back of that truck. How long do we have? An hour? I guess we could get it done. Yeah, but one of you's coming with me and the other one has to do it by himself. That's a single parent. You have to do a job that two people usually do alone. But there is something about men that women lack, just like there's something about women that men lack, okay? So I'm speaking as a man. I'm not going to cover the other side of this because I don't want to take it too long. And I think most most children grow up in a home with a mother today. Not all, most. And many grow up without the father. So that's what's absent, not that one's more necessary than the other. That's as much covering of my ass as I'm going to do here. But it is the mother that will say, Oh, Johnny. And it's the dad will say, Hey, Johnny, pick your shit up now. But, honey, he said, No. And in a good family, when that line's been crossed, that's when a woman goes, Listen to your father. And there are times when the father's being unreasonable because men are more aggressive. And the mother says, Can we talk? And you say, Okay. And then she makes her case to you, and you soften your tone. That's the balance. But without that occasional foot-in-the-ass experience, specifically young males grow up very irresponsible. They become very soft yet violent at the same time. And what soft but violent means, this sounds crazy, soft violent types are only violent when they have an intrinsic advantage over the other party. So, they'll hit somebody who's smaller and weaker than them. Not only would they not hit somebody or stand up to somebody that's stronger than them and bigger than them, they won't stand up to somebody that's about equal to them. Even if they are they have a little bit of advantage so they still won't do it. They have to have significant advantage. And, and this occurs. And then it leads to all these other problems. Because there's never an accountability. And so I don't blame these kids but this is, the, this is the situation. And all you can do in it is try to be a good influence on young people around you. The good news is, I think there is a turning occurring. I think that this has gone on long enough that people are beginning to see the problem and beginning to rectify it. And I think a lot of young men that are about my son's age. You know, they're in their mid to upper thirties. They came through life just like these kids that that this guy here's dealing with, and they were that kid, but then they hit the real world and went, "Holy shit!" And they feel like, "Damn it! Like, oh wow, uh, yeah, like that was dumb." And I, 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 don't want my kids to go through that. And I think the millennials that are having children, because everybody thinks millennials is kids, they're not. That's that's Gen Y. Those are the internet natives. The millennials, the oldest millennials are in their 30s. They're having children. They're buying homes. They're they're into their careers at this point. And many of them have gotten their shit together. And I think there, there's a, I think they might end up being, in spite of everything that had gone against them, they might end up being the salvation of the family in America. Because the millennial parents that I see, that have been doing it a couple years, not the brand new ones, the ones that have, you know, like a seven year old and a, a two year old, like my, my son does, they are good, solid parents. And they seem to be making the efforts that maybe were lacking in, in their generation. There's the lucky ones like my son, you know, he never went without a foot in his ass, I promise you. But a lot of his contemporaries didn't. And what I found interesting though, and this is why I believe kids need this when he was growing up, A lot of his friends were in single-parent homes, or dad was there, but he wasn't really there, if you know what I mean. And he wasn't the kind of guy that was going to put a foot in the ass and make the kid walk the line. I would, and if you walk in my house as a young man, I hold you the same standard I hold my son to. I'll be nice to you because you're a guest, but you're not going to be a smartass. You're going to help pick something up if something he's picking up. Right, And if I hear you goofing around about doing something stupid, I'm going to say, hey, stupid, come here. Let me tell you why you shouldn't do that. You would think, because of this, that my son and all his friends would go hang out at you know, the friend that's got a single mom for a parent who's working, and therefore the house is empty, and they can do whatever they want. You know where they were most of the time? My home. Now, we bribed them a bit. We made sure there was food and snacks and stuff like that for them and a place to be. Because if you're where I can see, you're not doing something you're not supposed to be. We had a lot of parents that were, you know, our friends, his friend's parents were like, why are you okay with them always at your house? Because I know they're not getting into shit. But they liked it. They liked having someone say, hey, knucklehead, don't do that. Because intrinsically they knew it. And I've had a few of them come back to me and say, hey, you know, I'm so grateful that you were like that. One, it's still my son's very good friend now. We don't see him much because he lives so far away. He, he told me flat out, you know. It was kind of weird. I sat down uh, recently uh, at my granddaughter's birthday and had a beer with this kid that I remember when he was, like, you know, knee-high to me. And he said, my life's better because you were tough on me. That doesn't be mean being mean. It just means setting a boundary and meaning it. And that's what a lot of these kids need. You know what? Because the kid that had the boundary set when the teacher says send me an email, it's 10% of your grade, the kid immediately just pulls out his laptop and goes, send? I mean, I mean what? You see what I'm saying? Anyway, let's move on from there. Um, this one's from John in Moore Park. Uh, actually, no, John looks like John has moved. This different John. Uh, this is John in Colorado. John says, do you give surplus quail eggs to dogs cooked or raw? Either way, do you give them the shells also? Details I know you discussed in a previous episode, but I can't find it. Recently got two yellow lab puppies. I have also been considering reducing my quail flock recently due to ridiculous surplus of eggs. Then a light bulb came on, and I thought I should just supplement the dog's diet with the eggs. And thought any thoughts would be appreciated. Thanks, John in Colorado. John, uh, with quail eggs, once the dog understands what a quail egg is, I now we haven't had many quail eggs for a while, but when we did have them in surplus, I would just go, hey, you want an egg? And the dog like, oh, yeah, I want an egg. And just throw them the egg. And they would eat it, shell and all. Uh, quail egg shells are really thin and easy for the dogs to eat. Um I do not believe in feeding dogs boiled eggs because I don't like cleaning explosive diarrhea dog shit off of my walls. If you feed dogs large amounts of boiled eggs, and I don't know why it's boiled, but boiled eggs have the same impact as cooked liver in a dog. It is bad. It is really, really, really bad. Don't do that. Also, Boiled eggs have a similar thing they do to dogs that they do to humans. We've all known the guy that's eaten like 40 purple nurples while drinking beer and the sulfur bombs he drops the next day. Not only will your dogs blow diarrhea on your wall, they'll blow noxious gas out their ass in your home. So don't boil the eggs. I do occasionally feed my dogs cooked eggs. We'll scramble them. Sometimes we ended up with big surpluses of duck or chicken eggs, and it was more than even we could eat, and we had a bunch of the freezer already for the, the, the drought period and all. They'd just throw a dozen eggs in a frying pan and lightly scramble them and throw them in the refrigerator, and they just keep better that way, and you'd throw them on the dog's food. However, they like raw eggs. And so even with the duck eggs, I would just, hey, you want an egg? And just, like, crack it on a rock and throw it on the ground, and they would clean it out. They usually do not eat the shells of larger bird eggs like they do the quail's eggs. So you can do it either way. You can also break them onto their food. I will tell you this. like When you first start feeding them eggs, they're like, eggs, oh man, you know how dogs are, especially like a lab or something like that, or Charlie, my, my uh, pointer pit mix. to like when they're wagging their whole body and their ass when they see an egg. Eggs, oh wow. And then like, you know, any anything that you have all the time, like, oh, an egg. Yeah, I'll eat one, two. That's not good. I don't eat any more. I'm... Had enough eggs so you can overdo it however it is a fantastic nutritional thing for the dogs and if you look at my dogs uh, their coats are just glossy and even with the ducks being gone we have little bantam chickens and the little bantam chickens give us more eggs than we use and uh, my dogs all get at least a couple raw eggs a week and one of my favorite ways to do the chicken eggs for them is i give them their dry food and I just crack a raw egg right on top of it. Throw the shells into the compost for the chickens to get their calcium back and stuff like that. So there's the ins and out on that one right there. Next up, I have a question um, from Len. Len says, "Greeting, Jacks. Wonder if you or any of your listeners have had experience with supermarket coin counters, the kiosks that you bring your job coins to and get a voucher. They take a percentage, but if certain products are chosen for redemption, you get over 100% value for your coins." Uh, I've been saving coins for years and now have a huge pile to cash in. Uh, Question, are the total cashed in results reliable and to be trusted? I don't know. I would say probably so. They're probably not. Because sooner or later, if you're doing something like that in this day of, you know, where everybody is old school David Horowitz and people, uh, somebody's going to go in there with a known volume, put it in, and record it. And you're going to get, you know, somebody like, this is Steve so-and-so with News at 5. We're out for you side or You know, I haven't seen anything like that, right? Is there an alternate method to cash in coins? Yes, I am going to hold on to that one for a second. And then should I keep some of the non-silver coins for a shit hit the fan center? Thank you for your wisdom, Len. Uh okay, so I don't think you're gonna I don't think it benefits you to keep a lot of coinage around for barter or even purchasing power. Um however, keeping some around is a good idea. Because you end up in a situation where you need change and the cash register won't work. So um, that type of thing, it might be beneficial to be able to, to break bills and stuff with, and you might end up in a situation where what's available is in vending machines. And they may, or, you know, they may or may not take bills. Most, most vending machines that they take bills and credit cards, but a lot of times the credit card thing won't work. If you know, the phone lines are down, but maybe that machine still has power to it, I guess. So I, I really don't, see a huge value for some coinage. Um uh, my father in law always kept in his pocket at all times a penny, a nickel, a dime, and a quarter. So he could break change and stuff. I think he kept two quarters uh and, and one of everything else, and that was his thing. It's so a little bit, I guess, for that type of in you know uh, Incremental use or something like that, I guess. But I wouldn't worry about having a bunch of it around. Let's go back to the alternate method to cash in your coins. If you have a bank account, take them to your bank. Every bank I've ever been to has a coin counter. And you can just give them the coins, they dump them in, and they'll deposit that to your account. Happy to do it. In fact, back when copper was selling for like 6 bucks a pound or something crazy like that, uh, people got really big into copper pennies. And people were actually getting copper pennies and selling them on eBay for more than their face value. Because the copper in them was worth like almost three times their face value. So people started hoarding copper pennies. So people made machines that sorted them. And the guys that were making a bunch of money doing, selling this stuff on eBay, this is what they were doing. they go down to the bank and they would buy $100 worth of pennies. They'd go home and put them through their sorting machine and sort out all the copper, pre-82s. And then they would take the balance right back to the bank, deposit it, and buy another hundred dollars worth of pennies and every I, I was I was reading forms and all learned about this, and what the people would say is at certain point you kind of piss the bank off you got to do a new branch, but as long as you go to like your a bank with multiple branches, you know you kind of move around and you don't piss them off that that much or save up your your non coppers for so long, but if you can do that, then if you go in with a big bucket full of quarters, nickels, dimes, and pennies. They'll throw it in there. So that's what I would do. And this is why I say they're almost a scam. They usually charge, if I remember right, 8 to 12%. So that means if I go in there with 100 bucks worth, they're going to take 8 to $12 from me of my money in return for performing a service that I don't really need because I can go, you know, usually wherever you are, if you're at a supermarket that has a coin counter... There's probably less than a mile from there a bank, probably one you can use. So you really are paying for something that's unnecessary. However, they're very upfront about what they're doing. Now, here's the other side of it. Well, if you buy certain products with the voucher in the store, then you end up you know, getting more than your money's worth. So they're going to take 8 bucks from you on $100, but they're going to give you basically, let's say, $12 worth of coupons, and now you're going to be at 4 bucks over what you put in. Yeah, you could probably get that type of a coupon or that kind of savings anyway. All they've done is repackaged it. So if you want to do that and that floats your boat, fine. But to me, when you're dealing with a voucher, that means now I've got to spend that money in the store. I go down the bank, dump all that coinage into the thing, and deposit it right to my bank account. I just leave it there. And that's what I would do if I were you. I wouldn't go giving you know four, eight, twelve percent, whatever it is, to these people in return for what your bank is happy to do for you for free. Next up, um, John asked me a question on rain barrels. He said, "What is the best way to hook up my rain barrels to a drip irrigation system for my garden?" I have two by fifty-five rain barrels hooked up in line for rain catchment. The barrels are raised on center blocks, eighteen inches high, and have twelve to four foot ra- twelve by four foot raised garden bed. 12-inch high sides. The bed sits 4 feet from the barrels. What would be the right pump on a timer to use for pumping water to the drip irrigation system? All ground is level, either uh, 1 emitter per square foot, estimating 48 emitters. Drip emitters require 15 to 25 psi to work, so gravity feed would not work without massively lifting the barrels to create head pressure. Thanks for all you do, John in Texas. John, first of all, maybe, maybe they require 15 pounds. Maybe they don't. Um, Nicholas Bertner, who has working with Nature Permaculture, has been on the show a few times. I've been to his property. He has, I think it's three IBCs set up, kind of the way you do. He's running standard drip emitter lines that are supposed to require pressure, and all he has is a solenoid. The solenoid opens. And the volumetric pressure alone is sufficient to cause the drippers to work. They run a little bit slower. They drip a little slower. So we just leave the solenoid open longer. If you are going to run 48 emitters, I'm going to bet that you would probably be better off splitting it between two and running 24 and 24 on two different solenoids. Okay? And there's probably some genius engineer out there who can figure out how to do it with one, but let's just say I would do two because ones are like 10 bucks. And this is what I would do if I were you. I would pick out your drip irrigation line emitters, etc. I would run them everywhere you want them to, and I would simply plumb a hose bib to your barrels and hook up a hose, turn it on, and see what happens. Set it up half, like I said. 24 of the 48. Turn it on see if it works. If it doesn't work, let's get a pump. If it does work, then we don't need a pump. And we're going to have to put the lines and the admitters out and together anyway. Right? So since we have to do it anyway, why don't we see if since it worked for Mr. Burtner, it'll work for you. Will it work for you? I don't know. And the reason that I don't know if it'll work for you is because I don't know exactly what lines he used and what type of emitters he used and did he do anything with them to make them a little bit more emitty or if that's a word, emitty, uh, or what have you. Then I'll tell you there's another option. I have seen people put together drip irrigation built with PVC pipe. PVC pipe runs in a nice straight line. It's cheap. You can dry fit it. You don't have to glue it together. And wherever you want an emitter, you drill a little tiny hole in there. I'll tell you right now, that'll admit. Now, might you then have to do? You know, you said there's 48 and it's 12 feet long. You want to do one per square foot. Might you then have to do four sticks of pipe, 12 holes each? Of course you would. But then, might you need four different um, solenoids, one for each line, and have one open for let's say you know 15 minutes, the other for 50 or however long? You calculate your flow rate, etc. Um, you might, okay, um, but now you're only at 40 bucks because you can get it like in a solenoid for about ten dollars and you need a controller for it, so you're at like another 20 bucks, so you're at like 60 bucks. If you can run them all with a single pump, and you probably can with most drip irrigation line, the sure flow pump is what I would recommend, but it's gonna set you back a few bucks. Not a lot, but by the time you add the timer in it, probably more than a couple solenoids and one controller. Um, the one that I would recommend is like a minimum for anything like this is a 198-gallon-per-hour model. And it's, again, made by a company called SureFlow, S-H-U-R-F-L-O. Uh, the one I would recommend for this application uh, is a is the model number is 2088-594-154. I'll have a link in the show notes to where you get this thing on Amazon. It's about 80 bucks. Here's my concern for you, though, man. Um, 110 gallons of water, it's not a lot of water. And I know you're in Colorado where it's probably what you can get away with without because it's like actually No, you're in Texas. You can do whatever you want. I'm sorry. I can finish the last guy. Um, you know, maybe it's just what you have and maybe you're gonna add to it in the future, but if you are watering a bed of this size, again, this is a forty eight square feet, and let's say you're gonna use a quarter of a gallon per square foot. That that's kinda of about a minimum. Uh, amount I think you, you, you need to be looking at. A quarter gallon per square foot. You're looking at watering about 12 gallons of water uh, per watering. And a lot of places you could do less. In Texas, and I looked at where in Texas, I won't say, because I know a lot of people don't want their exact locations given away. But the part of Texas you're in, it's really hot, even for Texas. And uh, so you're probably going to do at least that amount, right? So about 12 gallons per pop. So nine waterings here. You're empty, you're out of water, so huh, you see, like Mark Shepard and I talked about this on the air, appropriate technology. like the amount of water that your, rain, your rooftop can catch is massive, and the barrel is a little thimble compared to it. Uh, and let's say that you're going to do less than that. you're going to use half that. you're going to use you're still 18 days from an empty barrel. And so, the time of year when you most need your irrigation, there's plenty of times in Texas we go more than 18 days. So, I give the recommendation of this pump on the premise that over time you're going to increase your water catchment one way or the other. Bang for the buck, it is very difficult to beat IBCs. You can get a decent IBC for 40 to 50 bucks, 330 gallons. That one IBC holds the equivalent of over six of those barrels. So if you can get the barrels for free or something, then just keep chaining them together. But you know, long-term, I'm going to recommend that if you want this to be a thing, that you go ahead and increase the catchment and the amount of barrels. And I find most people that start gardening, especially if they're doing what you're doing, putting in drip irrigation, you're going to have success. Drip irrigation, I would do it if I could here because drip irrigation is magic. I can't do it because my water's so damn hard that it clogs my emitters. Um, Drip irrigation really works well, so you're going to have a successful garden. You're probably going to put another bed in. I would bet in the next year or two you're going to put another bed in. So I'm making this pump recommendation from a standpoint of it allowing you to expand your system over time. If it's never going to be any bigger than this, you know what, dude? Honest to God, any $50 fountain pond is going to give you enough pressure for those emitters to work. And then all you need is a simple timer, and figure out how long you want them to run. It's gonna, it, it will be more than sufficient. And what you can do with a, one of those is you put the pump inside the barrel. So the shore flow is designed to be an external pump. It runs off AC. There's also a DC version. You can look up if you need that one. I figure AC is easier for you. By the way, the, the each model of shore flow, there's different sizes and whatever. They're all the AC and DC. They're the same pump exactly the same. They're 12-volt pumps and then the AC version just comes with an AC power supply with it. But if you're going to use a fountain pump, you just put it in one of your barrels and run the tubing up and out of it. And then just make sure you keep your barrels level and plumb them together so they act as a single container and you're good to go. So, anyway, again, I'll put a link there and that's my thoughts on that one. Next one up I have is from Derek and Derek says is there an alternative to YouTube... That is better for old versions that won't be deleted. Background. I kept a list of educational videos on YouTube, including some from Jeff Lawton. Some of them are no longer available. I think you mentioned an alternative to YouTube was better because videos don't disappear because of real or hypothetical copyright problems. What was that? Separately, YouTube seems to be doing things like Facebook where content I want is no longer at the top of my page anymore. I love YouTube, but I'm starting to hate it too, Derek. Derek, let's first of all talk about how you can use YouTube for this use. If I hear you correctly, you're saying you have certain videos that you want to have access to in the future. And for one reason or another, you want that access to be Internet access. You don't want it to be access on a hard drive on a computer. Maybe because you'll be somewhere someday and decide, I want to watch that. Okay, here's how you can do that where YouTube will probably never delete it. YouTube is not proactive in the deleting of videos because of copyright infringement anyway. There are maybe some of the things they have deemed to be politically what they don't like that they go out of their way, and usually they don't delete those. What they do is they demonetize them, and it hurts the creator. You're not talking about videos like that. What you can do is set up a YouTube account of your own, which I'm sure you have, and then you can take those videos and upload them to your own account. Hold on, I know you might be saying, I don't have the videos. The reason I'm saving them on YouTube is be- because that way I can go view them and I can't download them off of YouTube. Again, I'll give you a solution for that in a second. Let's finish this thought process out. When you upload a video to YouTube, you can upload it as private, only you can see it. You can upload it as, uh, actually you can do like an unpublished, you can do a, a, a private where people can see it, but it doesn't get listed. You have to know the link to go to the video. And that would be the way I'd recommend that you... Uh, it's unlisted is, it, is what it's actually called. I do this every day. You'd think I'd have this down. So I just I don't screw this up. I went ahead and pulled it up like I'm going to upload a video. And here's your options. Public. This is what people think of when they think of YouTube. This is so other people can find your video in the YouTube listings and stuff like that. Then there is unlisted. And unlisted means that anybody can see it, but... You have to know the link to find it. You won't find it by searching YouTube or as an associated video or something like that. Then you have private where all you have to be logged into your account and listed as someone allowed to see it. And then you have scheduled, which means whatever you want it to be, it'll be that, but it won't be that right away. It'll come out later. Okay. Um, if you do private... Um, you have to be logged into your account to see it, and you have to be able to find it, and it's gotten a little bit clumsy with like the YouTube app on iPhones to see videos that you've uploaded, but you haven't published for public a long time after you've published them. Your most recent ones are sitting there. So if you do it, it's just simply unlisted. Then somewhere you can put a little page on a website somewhere, something like that, or keep a little note. Uh, in your phone or your on your device. And then every time you publish one, just take the link, copy it, and drop it in and put a description of it. So you have a list. So you take your smartphone, you open up your notes application, and you go through, and others, Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert. You click the link, it opens up in your YouTube browser, and boom, you're watching it. it I'm not saying that YouTube's never going to take that down. I'm going to say that it's highly unlikely. Because unless you're promoting that link, no one's ever going to see it, so no one's ever going to complain about it. So YouTube doesn't go out and look for this stuff. They receive infringement complaints. And equally with some of the political correctness shit, it's always complaint-driven. So much like we design our backyards when we're in an HOA so that we can have our quail or whatever, but the neighbors don't really see it, and therefore they don't complain about it, and therefore the blue hairs don't come down on us with their wrath, Uh, We can do that using YouTube. So that's one way to to solve this problem. As far as downloading the videos, if you go to, and I'm going to tell you exactly how to use this, so pay attention, because if you don't use it right, it can be frustrating. On a computer, if you go to ssyoutube.com, you will get to a video downloader site where you can basically strip YouTube videos off. If you paste the YouTube video URL into the box, it will then let you download an mp4 of the video high quality one at that when you do this if you just click the download link it will open it up and do a pop-up and annoy you with a bunch of crap and it won't work really well if you right click on the video format you want and select save as you will download that video directly to your hard drive and now you have it on your computer which YouTube's not going to delete and you can upload it to other places including right back to YouTube. Okay, So that, I thought, was important to know. Um, now, on alternatives. The one I recommend the most is DTube. DTube is put out by the same people that do SteamIt. It is a decentralized, cryptocurrency-powered clone of YouTube. And it works through file sharing. So when something's uploaded, other people download it, and then it's available as n- multiple nodes on the network. However, I have found that sometimes DTube just doesn't work really good. Sometimes it's there, you can see it, but it won't play. Sometimes it's there, it'll play, but you can't download it. Um, not because they don't want you to, uh, because it requires participation from other people. In a, a lot of ways, as I understand it, if I'm wrong, don't crucify me, just correct me. But as I understand it, DTube works in a lot of ways like the old music uh, sharing programs did. It just, you don't really see it that way. So, like, I used to download a hell of a lot of music with a program called LimeWire. And that meant that somebody else had to actually have a piece of the file for me to get the file. I believe that's how DTube works. That's why it's decentralized. That's why you can't do a takedown notice because it's everywhere at, everywhere at the same time. However, since I've been using DTube, I haven't seen a way to have any side of a client where I'm agreeing to share certain files or anything. Maybe that's when you set your account up. Maybe I haven't dug deep enough into it. I'm just saying... It may not always work, and I believe that has to do with how much participation is going on or how many copies of that particular video have been made or what have you. I'm not really sure. But it does work, and nobody can take the videos down, my understanding. Probably the best YouTube-like site out there that, if you're uploading your own, is really pretty good is as a, as a, as a site called PeerTube. P-E-E-R-T-U-B-E. It is absolutely uncensored, uh, and you can go nuts with it. There's not as many people using it, so there's not as much stuff to find. Then Vimeo. Vimeo is a great site, except they're going to charge you money for any significant amount of storage. But if somebody else has the content up there, it's available. The problem is they charge for the extra storage, so when you stop paying for it, it's no longer available. And it can get quite expensive, so you can look into that one too. What I love about Vimeo, for professional producers that want to sell video, it is fantastic. It is extremely high quality, it always works, it looks great, it functions flawlessly, Uh, and it allows you as a video producer that wants to sell copies of your movies to do that in a a very elegant way. But as far as just a straight up product, I'd recommend PureTube. As far as complete decentralization and protection, DTube. And it maybe it's me. Maybe my network doesn't. I don't know. I just have, like I said, times where I just sit there and look at it and nothing happens. So, uh, and I don't have that with any other video sites. So I'm thinking it's something to do with DTube. If anybody could explain that to me, what's going on, or maybe is there a way for it to work better for me? Would it work better if I was signed into my account or not? Let me know. Um, but I want you to again realize that with YouTube, you can if you strip the videos and put them back up there and make them either private or unlisted, uh, you're probably never going to have them disappear. Additionally, I think that one of the things you mentioned was well, YouTube's not putting things in the order I like them or anything anymore. You know, I I have found that I found like on Facebook, I see the same stupid posts that I'm not interested in so much. And eventually I hide it, and then I see it again because somebody else posted it, and I only hide it for the person to you know, oh my God, and i can 't tell you how many of the the stupid little uh, Facebook uh, communities that have their little you know so and so this or so and so that that I've blocked them completely because you guys keep sharing their crap, and i don 't care about their crap, but yet you still don't really and you, and what'll happen is you 'll see something you 're really interested in. And something happens and you you, mig- you, you migrate off of that, that page. And when you go back, you can never find that one again. Uh, it is kind of bad. But with YouTube anyway, the primary thing that you need to be doing to make sure that you can find the content you're looking for is subscribe to the creators that you like. Because you always pull up your subscriptions and you'll see the most recent stuff from all the people you've subscribed to. Now, if it's an old video you're trying to follow, you're talking about that could be a little bit different. So make yourself a list. You know, make yourself a list. Like, yeah, put it in the notes app. Put it in a word document on your computer or something like that. Uh, put it in an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, make it and then it's searchable uh, and it's sortable. And I mean, you know, and that way you always have access to that information. Because uh, don't rely on them to do it for you. Because even if they're not doing anything nefarious, they're going to build their algorithms based on getting people to watch more videos, not serving you the individual. That's that's these companies that serve millions of people. They build to the aggregate average. And you, you can't fault them for that. Anyway, let's take another one. This one's from Craig. Craig says, um, hey, Jack, what you taking dietary supplements? I occasionally listen to Coast to Coast AM radio show about once a month a guy selling dietary supplements is on making fantastic claims about the effectiveness of those really expensive products. That said, I have type 2 diabetes and muscle and joint issues, so I got to say the topic interests me. I'd love to get your take on dietary supplements. Thanks for all you do, Craig in California. Craig, um, well, first of all, since you're dealing with health issues, you are their target. Um, when you're dealing with health issues and you have pain in your life and you have discomfort, you have things that you have to do that you'd rather not have to do, you really want something to actually be what you're looking for. So you have a some level of a confirmation bias uh, that's, that's sitting there waiting to be taken uh, advantage of, and that's what these people do. They use, I've talked about it before, they use the cash sales formula, and once you see the cash sales formula, you always recognize it. It doesn't always mean the product is a scam, but you know the formula is being used, so you're now aware of it, and that is create, agitate, solve, help. You create a problem, and what they do is they put people on testimonies. Let's sound just like you. I had diabetes. My joints hurt. My back hurt. I had no energy, whatever. And after just six weeks of being on the program, right, so they they, talk, they create the problem, then they agitate it with how bad it really was. Then they solve the pro- problem. I took this. This worked for me. And then they help the customer become a customer, which is, hey, we have a payment plan. Get the first bottle free, whatever. And every single commercial in this world runs on that exact formula because it works. Understanding that, you can realize that you can plug almost any product in there as long as it's legal and as long as it has the things that it says that are in it and as long as somebody somewhere took it and happened to feel better after taking it, you can sell that product legally and you're not going to end up in prison for it. And the reason everybody uses the cash formula is it makes cash for you. It works. So then you have to ask yourself, self, Given that this can make people money by putting crap in a bottle and selling it, and it can keep them out of jail if they do it the right way, and it always works and everybody does it, might there be some people that don't really give a shit about me that would solve my problem even though they're not solving my problem just to make money? And yourself will say, well, yes, that's possible. Okay, so I think by and large the claims made by these types of companies and the one that I hear on my AM radio all the time when I make the mistake of turning radio on when I go out uh, is a company called Balance of Nature, and it's fruits and veggies, and they, and they always do the same thing. Some old lady be there. I was having pains every day, and now I just get out of bed and I feel wonderful. Does she really? I don't know. Is it a placebo effect? I don't know. Do I really think that somebody's you know riddled with uh, you know uh, arthritis is going to start taking some vegetable capsules and feel better? No. The other thing is these companies usually want to maintain the customer relationship. They've gone into various forms of health coaching. They call them premium customers and things like that, and it's the program. It's not the product anymore, and you have a health coach, and they call you and talk to you once a month or every couple weeks, and they make sure you're taking enough because you can always take some more, and they make sure you know about new things that are available. So now they're farming you as a customer. Well what they're also doing, and this is some benevolent things, is they're making sure a lot of times that their customers are doing the right things in their life. They'll have a lot of them will have an anti inflammatory diet that they recommend and, and avoiding certain foods and making sure you're drinking enough water and stuff like that. And I gotta believe there's some number of people that, you know, live alone and they are achy and have problems and stuff like that. And boy, it feels good when somebody calls me every week and all they do is ask me to buy a product I was gonna buy anyway. No, you weren't, but you think you were. And that If they're the type of, like an older person or something like that hasn't been drinking enough water, and they get that phone call once a week from someone that tells them to do it, and then it's because it's an authority figure, not their kids or their buddy, and then all of a sudden they do, like they make sure they fill that water bottle and they're drinking that water bottle of water once or twice a day and, and dumping it, and also they probably do feel better. Last, I do believe that these type of products do have the potential to improve your health. Um, but let 's talk about what the purpose of these types of dietary supplements are. They are to make sure that you get the micro and macronutrient, or the'm sorry the micronutrients and the, and the minerals in your diet that you should get from a balanced diet because you 're not eating a balanced diet that 's a very hard thing for many Americans to do today is to eat that balanced diet and as we age, we also get into conditions where we have things like pernicious anemia this is a a, a shortage of of a b12 Not iron, pernicious anemia, not just anemia. So pernicious anemia is a big problem in our elderly. And a supplement that has highly bioavailable B12 will often help an elderly person feel a lot better. They call a B12 shot a happy shot because it, it removes depression. And when you're depressed, the ache hurts more. So I believe there are ways that some of these things can help. I also think that if you take concentrated vegetable powder, which is what these things are, and you're taking that and vegetables and fruits and you're getting the micronutrients and you're getting the minerals and things like that, I think it's actually beneficial. It does help, and it might make you feel better. However, the expensive product that's advertised on TV and the product that you can buy on Amazon or from a health food store for a third of the price or a quarter of the price or 20% of the price is essentially the same thing. A lot of these companies are network marketing type companies. They talk about we have a patent this and a patent that, and a patent this and a patent that. And then they say, well, the reason pharmaceutical companies don't want you to use these is because you can't patent nature. But we have four patents on it. Shut up. So I think that if you can reasonably define that there are certain things in your diet that you are deficient in and identify proper nutritional supplements that make that up, they can bring you back to par. I do not think any of them are going to heal your cancer or get rid of your rheumatoid arthritis. But most conditions in America today are due to, the chronic conditions anywhere, are inflammatory conditions. They're autoimmune in one form or another, and they are the body becoming inflamed. And a good solid diet good hydration, making sure you're getting all the nutrient that you're supposed to, a good intake of of lactobacillus and other beneficial bacteria, go a long way toward reducing inflammation. Quitting smoking, drinking in moderation, all of those things, a long way toward reducing these inflammatory conditions. And that helps with everything. Even things that are incurable, it probably reduces how quickly they progress. I would bet somebody in a highly inflamed state that's going to have Alzheimer's disease probably progresses quicker in their problems from Alzheimer's than someone without it. I don't know that, but I would guess that's probably... And that's like an extreme example. A person that has you know all of these other problems, when they get cancer, they're probably less able to fight cancer and handle chemo. So I think that these supplements do work within the limits of what work means, But the ones that are highly marketed and they're the special ones and only mine do this, it's bullshit. Powdered blueberry is powdered blueberry no matter whose label is on the box. Those are my thoughts on that. I probably wouldn't trust people that are using Coast to Coast AM to infomercial their product with the cash formula. Since you didn't tell me the brand, I'm not sure. But if it is balance of nature, I wouldn't give those people my money. That's all I've got to say on it. Let's take one more. This one's from Kieran, and uh, Kieran says, Hi Jack, just wondering, what is the long-term view on where property tax will go over the next 10 to 20 years? Are we heading for a sort of worst of communism plus capitalism added together, i.e. a sort of fascism? No, capitalism and communism together, that is fascism. Okay, it's not sorted. it's, it's fascism. Anyway, uh, whereby if property taxes keep going up, homeowners will effectively be renting their houses from fascist state and thereby defeating and undermining their efforts when previously bought their home. Also, where do you see agricultural land in all of this? I'm in Europe, but our governments watch your government closely and copy them. Regards, Karen, I think you might have that one backwards. I think our government watches yours and copies, and we're always being told we need to be more like our European allies in many ways. Um, so let's talk about property taxes. I don't know how they work in Europe, Kieran. Let's talk about how they work here. The federal government, probably somewhere in some way, property taxes somebody, but the average citizen doesn't pay any uh, tax on their property to the federal government. It's paid to the county, the city, and the state for various things. The primary thing, though, is to provide services like medical and police first responder type services. And that's usually the smaller bulky one, because there'll be a bunch of little crap in there. And then the biggest one is school taxes. The majority of your property tax goes to pay for education. And it's in most cases that I've examined over half sometimes as much as 70 to 75% of your total property tax bill is, again, for uh, educational support of schools. But there'll be other shit in there, okay? And some places it might be 50-50 with all the other services. There'll be a hospital tax and things like that in there. Let's talk about one of the reasons that this has gotten to be so bad. I mean, we have people with you know $200,000 houses paying $5,000 a year in taxes on them. How did we get here? Well, we got here because, number one, government's not always stupid. So government, a long time ago, started at the local level and the state level to implement these property taxes. And they implemented them at very small percentages when homes were not very expensive. Government, being slick like a snake, knew that over time the value of the property would go up, and even if we didn't raise the percentage, the tax receipts would go up. They made the case to people that, hey, if you want to move from the one-room schoolhouse with a spinster teaching your kids to something that actually is more like what they have in Europe, these European schools that we wanted to be like, um, then, you know, we're going to need some money. And it's not that much. And, you know, the guy would look and, you know, might be a couple dollars a year back then. Okay, well, yeah, you know, and even once my kids are gone, yeah, it's good for the kids across the street to get an education. You're going to be taking care of me when I'm old, all that stuff. So, you know, and then as cities developed and towns developed and, and everything moved forward, you know, there were other services that people wanted and the government was happy to provide them in return. Well, we need to put a little tax here and a little tax there and a little tax here. And for a long time, as much as I hate tax on property, and I do, I find it to be one of the most insidious things in the world. You're taxing something I've already paid for, and I've already paid taxes on, and I own it. And you're taxing me for my success. It, it is, in many ways, more insidious than an income tax. Because I only pay income tax when I make the income. If I stop earning income, I stop paying the income tax. Once I own the property, I pay tax on it as long as I want to keep the property. If I don't pay the tax, you just take the property from me. But it still mostly was a pretty decent deal. When you really looked at the totality of what you got for living in a subdivision in a city as far as you know, waste removal and stuff like that, and the, the ambulance would come if somebody was dying, I mean, your kids could go to school. It wasn't that burdensome. It wasn't great, but it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And the reason is because the founders were not stupid. So the founders of our country, in their wisdom, said, yes, the government can borrow money, and yes, the government has the power of monetary creation. In other words, it gave the federal government both the power of borrowing and the power of coining money. But then it restricted the states, and it said the states could make nothing, with, could make money with nothing but silver and gold. In fact, so the state of Texas can make a gold Texas dollar, or $20 or $100 or whatever they want, but it can only be gold. It has to be a piece of gold. They can't issue a note against gold. They have to actually have the gold. Um, So in time, the federal government figured out, through the use of the Federal Reserve System, how to combine the power of borrowing and the power of coining money or printing money. And without a limitation saying they had to have a commodity like silver or gold behind it, they were able to basically start printing money out of thin air. And this means when the federal government wants to do something and it can't tax you and I sufficiently to do it, it can create money by borrowing it. And I don't want to go deep into an economics lesson today, but that's the important thing that you need to understand that printing money is borrowing money. And the issuance of the bond actually creates the money out of thin air, it becomes new money. And this means that the federal government can print its way to a I don't want to use the word balanced budget, but it is a balanced budget from the standpoint of at the end of the year, the bills have been paid. The debt might be there, but all of the debt has been serviced. And next year, we can service the existing debt by printing more money, and we create inflation, which is a backhanded tax on the American people. The inflation tax is like a property tax on your money. You put your money into a safe, secure bank account, It earns a very tiny interest rate, but you know at least it's safe. If real inflation is 4% that year and you had $100,000 in there, they just taxed you $4,000 on your $100,000. Oh, gee, all of a sudden that's starting to add up to be more than I get taxed on my property. But you don't feel it. So the federal government has this power. It can make up its shortfalls with it. State. Local and county governments do not have this power. They cannot print money. And there is a limit to how much money they can borrow. And in most places, once they borrow a certain amount of money, any additional money that they borrow has to be approved by voters. So if they want to continue to provide more services, new services, etc., if they want to continue to have schools, which is a service, not a product, and therefore it doesn't have the reverse pricing curve, where over time efficiency makes the unit cost less, so when we make a computer, the first one's expensive, the 5,000th one is dirt cheap. In schools, we have to have a trained professional teacher children, and they always want more money because they're underpaid and they're heroes and blah, blah, blah. blah blah. Well, then we've got to get the money from somewhere. Now, once government finds a source of money, see, government's like the Ferengi Alliance in Star Trek. Once you have their latinum, you never give it back. Okay, and if you can get more, you always get more. I'm pretty sure that's one of the rules of acquisition too. So, what government did was then it would say, "We just need a little more money. We just uh, we just need a little more money, just a little more. Just like remember that was in a, one of the gangsters. His Godfather said, so me let me wet my beak a little bit." Right, so we just need. It's going to be fifteen bucks a year. That's all this increase is going to be. It's fifteen bucks a year. Think of the children, and everybody's like, "Well, shit, fifteen bucks, okay." And you you get fifty-one percent of people because now we're in a pure democracy when we're talking about this kind of taxation. This is not a a representative democracy in the form of a republic. This is if I vote yes on Proposition Twelve or whatever the hell it is, your property goes up, tax goes up. If enough of us vote yes. So you went over one percent of the people beyond the 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 the, the, the average. You get fifty one percent. You get fifty point one. Oh, you get fifty point zero one percent. Everybody's taxes went up fifteen bucks, but that tax was based on the value of John's house. Well, so. Next year, that 15 bucks can be 18 bucks. And then the year after that, that 15 bucks can be 20 without ever raising it again because John's property continues to appreciate in value. His success as a real estate investor, even in only his primary residence, is punished year after year. And this 15 bucks here and this 12 bucks there and this 50 bucks there and that $75 there and that all compounded. And then, of course, the government stepped in with, you know, assistance with loans and you could get a house with 3% down and people stopped worrying about their property tax bill. They didn't care. All they did was say, "Well, I'm paying 1200 bucks a month for rent. If I can rent if I can buy a house for that, I'm I'm doing it." And you can see why they would. And they would they would feel like, you know, what? Well, my house payment's not really going to go up because it's unlike where I rent and somebody just raise my rent, they can't do that. Oh, oh, well, the Ferengi can do that whenever they want to. They just come out and even when they can't get a tax bill passed to raise your rate or to add a new property tax in for another dollar here, 25 bucks there or whatever, what they do is they just send the assessor around and he just says, Yeah, your house is worth more money now and you pay more tax. And with that kind of a well, they can constantly go back to what do you think they're going to do? They're going to keep doing it, and they'll push it to the absolute edge of what they can get away with. And then they will promise that money to bureaucrats, i.e. their employees, into the future in the form of pensions, as though it will always grow at that rate. And when it doesn't, they'll go out and find a way to make it grow at that rate. But the problem for them is that this is non-reality it can't go on forever. So my belief is that sooner or later you will reach a breaking point. You will reach a breaking point where people will just go, no, I don't have it anymore. And you will see federalism in action in the United States and republicanism in action in the United States as people pick up and leave these high-tax areas more and more and more, and it's already happening. The problem is when they all go like the same types of places that have less of these problems, and then they all bitch and they want all the things they did get at the old place, but they don't want to pay for them at the new place. And initially, they don't have to. And the reason they don't have to is so many people are moving in and the population is growing, so the tax rolls go up just by adding new customers is a way to look at it. You're growing your market instead of by raising prices and instead of by appreciating property at higher values, you're you're growing it through population growth. Of course, the services now have to go to more people. So sooner or later, you're back into that catch-22 and they start jacking shit up. And there's going to come a point where there's going to be nowhere to go And people are going to blow. The other thing that's going to happen is there is a a coming complete and total revolution in education. We are using an 1850s Prussian model of education today. We have no reason that these students need to cost as much as they do to educate today. It has nothing to do with whether a teacher is a worthwhile human being or not. It has nothing to do with whether they care about their children or not. It has nothing to do with whether they work hard or not. We have teachers that are the finest people you will ever see, and we have teachers that are shitbags. Okay? That's just, and that's the truth about priests. That's the truth about lawyers. That's the truth about, well, there's probably more shitbag lawyers than not. But there's good, honest, hardworking lawyers that God bless them for what they do to help people. And they're shitbags. There's soldiers that are heroes, and there's soldiers that are shitbags. The word shitbag became a thing because soldiers recognized shitbags among their own ranks and started that word being a thing. So there's nothing to do with the heroic teacher, if your mythological ideology that you have. This does to do with just fundamental economics and reality. The only reason parents tolerate what we pay for an education for our children today is because we also get free daycare. That's why. If we didn't get free daycare to go along with it, then they would, people would not tolerate it. And we went to two, household, two income households. I see a convergence of things going on here. I see education changing to where it's going to cost less to educate a student, and a lot more of the education can be done at home. I see technology eliminating jobs and more and more homes going back to one-income homes in time. And I don't think government wants that. But I I think in the end, the market's going to market, and the market will eventually lead. And then you have the Ferengi, the tax collectors at the local, state, and county level. Once you have their latinum, never give it back. Latinum, by the way, is a type of gold instrument used in the Star Trek universe. Um, Never give it back. But how do you keep it, and how do you keep asking for more of it when everybody all of a sudden knows, hey, guess what? Um, you you aren't paying all those teachers anymore because so many of them got laid off. That's the best case scenario, that we actually do have this revolution in education that I see, and sooner or later it has to happen, so that we can actually reduce the costs and the need to collect the taxes. Because the other other option is going to be a wholesale revolution in this country. And the way the tide turns and the way things flow... Um, and the way everybody wants it to go, it could go into like you know, Venezuela-style socialism revolution. In an effort to pay less taxes, you end up paying more, right? But we just change what we tax. I, it, it's a dangerous thing. It's a powder keg, and you you have to ask yourself in all things where people are being extorted. How much can they afford to be extorted? And. Um, You know, it's going to take, like, the only thing that can fix this problem is new communities being built that do things smarter. Republicanism is the only thing, and I don't mean the Republican Party at all, guys. If you hear Republicanism and you think GOP, you are not understanding my use of the word. I'm talking about as a form of government, not as a political party, as a form of government. Isn't it interesting we live in a democratic republic. I, I know some of you, it's a republic! I said it was a republic. Okay? <laughs> Republics are not magic. North Korea is a republic. The USSR was a republic. Okay? A republic is a, a form of government. And we are a not a democracy. We are a representative democracy in the form of a republic. And you have two political parties the Democratic Party, representative of democracy, and the Republican Party. And they didn't even have any originality when they came with their names. They just took each a half of what we are to perfectly divide us. But Republicanism, done right, recognizing the... See, that's the thing. The Republic, a constitutional Republic, is only as valuable as its Constitution and how well the Constitution is followed. That's those two things. Because You can have a constitutional Republic, which is what we are, It's accurate to say we're a constitutional republic. It is accurate to say that we are a democracy, if you understand your use of the word when you say it. If you say it as, but 51% voted, so the rest of you need to shut up, no. If you say it as, that's how we elect our representatives, then we're a democracy. But our Constitution, even in spite of its flaws, is the most libertarian Constitution ever drafted. It restricts government more than any other constitution that exists in the modern day that I'm aware of. Maybe there was an ancient one that did more so. I don't know. But today, it is the most restrictive of government. To solve this problem, we need dozens and dozens of small communities starting up that do whatever they can to minimize the impact of state-level property taxes and keep the taxes at the local level dirt cheap to nothing. And there's not a lot of political will to do that right now. People don't build communities for that purpose. They build them to sell houses and make money. Will anybody ever do it? I don't know. But you're going to have to cut the cost of education to cut property taxes. As for agricultural land, the exemptions will stay in place. They have to. Uh, there's. It's too deep to go into right now, but agricultural land will stay the way that it is. However, they may get a little tighter on what exactly is agricultural land. And one thing to understand about the exemptions for agricultural land is it ain 't as good as some people think it is because let 's say I have a twenty acre farm and i 'm using you know most of the land honestly for agriculture, um, they might still assess my home and the and the land directly around it as residential, and I only get the exemption on the bigger piece and while it saves me a lot of money. As a homeowner, it doesn't necessarily save me a lot of money on the taxes comparative to what somebody with a home, with, let's say, a half acre would pay. Just leave it at that. With that, let's go ahead and wrap the show up today. I uh, hope you enjoyed a good varied show coming back. I think we covered 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 topics today. I think that's awesome. All quite different from each other. Try to bring you a lot of variety on your Mondays. And also, try to bring you really great products through tspaz.com. Remember, you can help support the survival podcast and the work we do no matter what you buy just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I got a product for you today because we're right on the eve of going back into hunting season. I wanted to make you aware of it in advance this year if you didn't find out about it last year. It's made by a company called Outdoor Edge, and it's the uh, RB20 razor blaze knife. Now, this is a little. liner lock folder knife. Actually it's a it's a back lock folder knife. And uh, basically it's a knife that you can swap the blades out on. And the blades are like a dollar sixty a blade. And the way it works, you push a button, you pull a blade out, and you throw it away. You can sharpen if you want to, but in general, this is what this is where you throw the blade away, take a new blade and pop it in. And the main use of this knife is skinning. One place your knife needs to be razor sharp is skinning. And one of the things that makes it, you know, where it dulls a knife quickly is skinning, especially in certain areas where you're shaving some hair off And arm. Hair is actually really good at dulling knife blades. Um, And it's the one place that as your knife gets just a little bit dull, the work gets a lot harder. And I'm big on sharpening knives. I know how to do it. I've got a really great knife sharpener I recommend. uh, The canned Onion Edition uh, little belt sharpener. I, I get it. But usually when I'm skinning a deer or a hog, it's like 8 o'clock at night, I've been hunting for a couple days, I stink, I want a bath, I want a cold beer, I want to throw the heart on the on the grill with a little salt and pepper, and I want to sit in my easy chair. I don't want to be out there sharpening my knife. That's why I love these. And I'll tell you what, last year is when I decided to get one, they're 35 bucks. I went out hunting, I ended up at a camp with like 14 other guys, over half of them had this exact same knife I did. They all loved it. They all loved it. I met this dude. This guy was rolling in money. He was only in his mid-30s, but he had uh, developed a patent that he sold to Cancer Treatment Centers of America on stem cells. He had millions of dollars from selling the patent, plus royalties coming in. He had hunted in Kazakhstan recently, um, hunting for sheep. He's hunted in New Zealand, Australia, Russia, Africa. This guy, all he does is hunt. He had one. Do you think he could have any knife he wants? Do you think he could phone up Patrick Rohrman and have him make him whatever? Yeah, sure. But for skinning, carry a thirty-five dollar knife. Why it always works. He made a mistake though. Yeah, Mister 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 Mr. Moneybucks. He made a mistake. He was skin, He has godson with him. His godson shot a gorgeous outad, and he was skinning that owdad. And he was really taking his time because he was going to get this mounted for his godson. You could tell it was really important to him. And I noticed sitting next to him was one of the outdoor edge knives. And I said, "Oh, you have one of those. Won't you use that?" He goes, eh, "The blade's dull." And I didn't get any extra blades. And he had just come in country from being abroad, and he had forgotten. I said, I- "I've got a bunch of. You want-, want a blade for it? I'll give you a blade for it." He was like, going to hug me. So I gave him a blade, and I sat there and talked to him. That's how I know all this stuff about him. And, and we talked about it. We t- I talked to a bunch of guys there, and everybody loves this knife for thirty five bucks. I don't think you can go wrong. Um, I don't use it for anything but skinning, which means at a dollar sixty a blade. I don't care. Last year, I skinned with that knife three deer and a pig. And I probably went through six blades. You know what? So what? I was sitting down at 8.30 with my beer at the fire while other guys were still skinning. The ones that didn't have one, right? Or didn't get their new blades. So to me, it's that's totally worth the convenience based on practice. There is another knife that's very similar to this. It's the uh, Hamelon Paranta, and I did not like it as much. I talked to a couple people there that owned both of them. Uh, One guy preferred it because he said he liked that it was easier to clean, but he said he didn't like that it was harder to change the blade. You were more likely to cut yourself changing or installing the blade, and it didn't have as good of a feel when you were skinning. And I agree with all of those. As far as the cleaning, when I brought mine home, it had deer tallow and crap in it. And I rinsed it under the really hot water and opened it up and threw it in the silverware thing in the dishwasher. Ran it through there and came out like brand new. So I, the cleaning thing is off for me. The Parada does have less expensive blades, significantly. I think about $0.80 cents a blade. So it's potato-potato type thing up to you. I have links to both of them in the review. But if you're going to be out hunting this year, you're going to be skinning, and you dread the thought of skinning a deer with a knife that's gone dull, and it's in the middle of the night. You don't want to go sharpening a knife or whatever. Get this: stick the blade in there. It is a cheap steel, and I'll tell you one thing about them: if you if you keep a steel, just a sharpening steel, to me the blades are so cheap I don't even do it. But if you keep a sharpening steel, and you know every once in a while you just touch that thing up with a the steel, there's there's absolutely no way you couldn't go through you know, maybe two deer with one of these blades. To me, again, I'm back to tired, I stink, I smell like a wild pig. I just want a beer, a bath, and bed. And I don't want one more thing to do. So check it out, the Outdoor Edge RB20 Razor Blades Knife item of the day. And remember, you can always support us by shopping on T-Spaz. Song of the Day today is by one of my all-time favorite artists, a man that left us quite a while ago, uh, Warren Zevon. And this is actually the last song that he ever did. It's called Keep Me In Your Heart. And you can tell he's still got the talent, but you could tell he's worn down when he recorded this song. In fact, uh, it was on his last album, and it was the last song that he recorded. And by the time he did record this song, he had gotten too weak to travel back and forth to the studio. So he had a, a, a simple studio set up in his home, and he recorded it from home. Uh, and even after that, he still did an appearance on David Letterman, a final farewell appearance. And I believe the last song that he did on Dave Letterman's show was Roland the Thompson Gunner. Dave Letterman's not my favorite person, but I, he was a very, he was a very good friend of Warren and he did a lot for him. And he really did appreciate Warren's music and he loved Warren. And, uh, so I'll thank anybody for being a good person in any way, even if I don't like him and others. And Dave Letterman would get a hat tip for, for his relationship with Warren's Zevon. I've really always considered Warren's death at only fifty six to be pretty tragic. Um, I think he had a lot of good music left in him. A lot of you guys, you got to know who this guy is because "Lawyers, Guns, and Money," you know, the one line in it that is so big in this community, the shit is at the fan, uh, is in there. "Werewolves of London" was another of his songs. Dying at 56, you'd figure a musician or something, something to do with drugs or something like that. No, he he had a little bit of a falling off the wagon after 17 years of sobriety after he got diagnosed. I think we can understand that. Um, He died of mesothemioma, which, of course, is lung cancer from asbestos. And there are some other minerals that can cause it. Uh, here's what's said on Wikipedia about his death. In interviews, Zivon described a lo- lifelong phobia of doctors and said he seldom consulted one. He had started working out and looked physically fit shortly before playing at Edmonton Folk Music Festival in 2002. He started feeling dizzy and developed a chronic cough. After a period of suffering with pain and shortness of breath, Zivon was encouraged by his dentist to see a physician. He was diagnosed with pleural mesothemioma, a cancer usually caused by exposure to asbestos that affects the pleura, a thin membrane around the lungs and chest lining. Zevon was deeply shaken by the news and fell off the wagon after 17 years of sobriety. Although Zevon never revealed where he may have gotten exposure to asbestos, his son Jordan suggests it probably came from Zevon's childhood playing in the attic at his father's carpet store in Arizona. Uh, refusing treatments he believed might incapacitate him, Zevon instead began recording his final album, The Wind, which includes performances by close friends Bruce Springsteen, Don Hendley, Jackson Brown, Timothy Schmidt, Joe Walsh, David Lindy, Billy Bob Thornton, Emmylou Harris, Tom Petty, and Dwight Yoakam. At the request of the music television channel VH1, documentarian Nick Reed was given access to the sessions and made a television film Inside Out Warren Zevon. Um, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, people say, well, what if he had gotten treatment? You know, I looked it up and it was expected that he would live only a couple months after he was diagnosed anyway. And he lived over a year. And it may be that, you know, treatment may have actually made the prognosis accurate. I mean, there's a point, I think, where we have to accept our lives and what's left of them and and do the most we could. And he chose to finish. He chose to finish the game. And did so with the people that he he made music with his whole life. I mean, him and Jackson Brown were tight out of that whole list. Him and Jackson Brown did a lot together. And he chose to to, to finish the game. And uh, just an amazing guy. And... You know keep me in your heart that's the name of the song but if you when you hear the the ballad itself just keep your keep me in your heart for a while and I think what that kind of means to me is look I know that someday you'll forget about me and you won't think about me much if at all anymore that even though I'm pretty famous I'm not that famous people that are old like Jack will eventually get old and die too and will anybody even know? of my songs and my music and will be just a footnote in history. But you that knew me, you that cared about me, keep me in your heart after I'm gone, at least for a while. And I think that's all any of us can hope for. However, I think that we can hope for a lot more if we do more with our lives. There are impacts that this man's music had on my life that made me in some ways more of the person that I am. And therefore, I did things that had impacts on the lives of others. So long after I'm gone, long after Warren's been gone, long after anybody's kept me in their heart for a while, Warren and anybody else who's touched my life, that then I touched somebody else's life, that then they touched somebody else's life, will still be having an impact. And that can be through indirect things, like one thing that you say to one person that inspires them to take an action that they repeat someday, like that. Or it could be something a little more tangible, like the planting of a tree, that long after you're gone, nobody even knows where that tree came from, but somebody sits under the shade of it, and that tree's 200 years old, and you planted it. And you're still having that impact on the world. This is what I mean when I say, make the most of your dash. With that, this has been Jack Spirica with another edition of the Survival Podcast, Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less Keep me
0: in your heart for a while When you get up in the morning and you see that crazy sun Keep me in your heart for a while There's a train leaving nightly called when all is said and done me in your heart for a while. keep me in your heart for a while sha la 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 keep me in your heart for a while sha Simple things around the house. Maybe you'll think of me and smile. You know I'm tied to you like the buttons on your blouse. Keep me in your heart for a while. Hold me in your thoughts. Take me to your dreams. Touch me as I'm falling. And I will be right next to you Engine drivers headed north to Pleasant Street Keep me in your heart for a while These wheels keep turning but they're running out of steam Keep me in your heart for a while Child Show.